I do think that there's a lot of work out there that's not going to be any worse with AI. I think in terms of like the, the role that AI is going to play in, in, in marketing, I feel like it's like asking a caveman, hey, how's this new wheel going to change things? Hey there, James here, and you're listening to the Own the Moment podcast, the show where we explore the complex and always evolving landscape of marketing, advertising, and branding, and try to get to the bottom of what it means to be a truly memorable brand. The Own the Moment podcast is brought to you by Como Technologies, a self-service, complete customer engagement platform that helps you cut through the noise to truly connect with your customers and retain and grow those connections over time. With Como, you can build and deploy new campaigns, activations, promotions, and programs in days, not months. And our software is used by some of the world's biggest consumer brands from Heineken to Budget, Goodman Fielder, Foxtel, JLL, Williams Racing, and McDonald's. Learn more at Como.tech. This week's guest is Kevin Lynch, a creative director at Oatly. Kevin and his team refer to themselves as the Oatly Department of Mind Control, which I think tells you a little something about their creative department. Oatly, the billion dollar oat drink company out of Sweden, is a brand that loves to push the boundaries and has truly mastered the art of capturing attention in an increasingly noisy world. Or is it a noisier world out there? Kevin believes that the marketing world isn't actually getting any noisier, it's just that brands are getting more predictable leaving a huge open goal for those willing to take a more creative and bold approach, something that Oatly undoubtedly does extremely well. Kevin and I spoke at length about building a challenger brand, winning hearts and minds in an industry filled with aggressive incumbents, responding to the haters online, their wonderful spam newsletter campaign, and the value of great copywriting. This episode is packed with takeaways for marketers and creatives alike. I hope you enjoy it. Let's get to the show. Kevin Lynch, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Kevin, I found this quote from you, which I really love. And you said, creativity is more impactful if it's the center of a company's culture rather than the name of a department. I also found on your LinkedIn that you uh, you call Oatly's creative department the department of mind control, which took me to, I don't know, sounds very Orwellian or something like that. You know, tell me, I guess, where did that moniker come from and, and how can a brand put creativity at, at the core rather than just the name of a team or department? Yeah, sure. For, for that particular moniker, if, if you dig into sort of the origins of a lot of things uh, here at Oatly, um, you discover that it's like, oh, why, why did you do this? The answer you get is like, we thought it would be funny. Okay, yeah. And, and that, was, that was basically it. Uh, John Schoolcraft, who is very important here. Um, uh, he, he basically came on to the, in, came into Oli and his, one of his big desires was to kill the marketing department. And essentially, you know, th- what came out of it was the Department of Mind Control, Oli Department of Mind Control. And, you know, I, I think it, it sounds like it's just a moniker type thing. But I, I do think that when you, you know, when you're familiar with organizations and structures and things like that, you know, marketing department or a creative department does certain things. No one's quite sure what a uh, department of mind control is supposed to do, and I think by having such a weird title, it kind of enables us to uh, to do things uh, that are a little bit a little bit more borderless, if that makes sense. And I think I think what you find here when you talk about putting creativity at at the, the core of a business, I don't think that's a decision that a creative department or marketing department decides. It really is sort of an organizational one. 
And, you know, and if you want that at the center, you kind of need a, a champion at the center to, to sort of support that. And for us, that's really come in the form of uh, Tony Peterson, who's our CEO. And he and John have, have uh, go way back and have just a really great symbiotic relationship. And they kind of decided early on that, that creativity really could infuse a lot of energy throughout the business uh, of Oatly. It had been around for almost uh, 20 years um, and it had sort of moderate growth along the way. But they felt like, hey, here's this revolutionary product sitting on the shelves, and 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 not not enough people are uh, are noticing. So for them, it really was this business opportunity to kind of think creatively in every aspect of the business. And and uh, so yeah, by changing the name, by recognizing the opportunity, by having a champion in Tony, I think all of that was was really helpful. Something I think, like just going back to the Department of Mind Control thing for a moment, I think for me that speaks to something that I see in all of Oatly's marketing and advertising and, and I guess creative, which is this really refreshing self-awareness. It's sort of like it's advertising and we know it's advertising and you know it's advertising and that's okay. And I think in a time, it, you know, small side note, I just had an interesting discussion with Orlando Wood. I don't know if you know Orlando. He wrote a book called Lemon um, or and Lookout, which was all about this idea that, you know, we're in a, a crisis of creativity because too many advertisers are focused on measurement and optimization and they've lost the sort of the self-awareness, the humor, the sense of time and place. And for me, I think Oatly feels like a brand that very much leans into those things. I guess you could say it's a, a right brain brand in many ways. Something I wanted to ask you was about, you know, on that note and on, on being self-aware, I mean, Oatly is, for me, and I don't know if you sense this as well, it feels like a divisive brand. What do you make of that? Is it a divisive brand or is it just a sense I have? You know what? I, I I don't think it is, but I understand where the sensibility comes from. Uh, you know, I I don't think it is. I mean, ultimately, we're we're making oat drink. Like that's not a that's not a divisive. Thing. Like leave those goddamn oats alone. Like, uh. um, but but I I I think the difference and and the reason why you get that impression is I think we're really transparent with people who object to us. You know, I don't I don't think you know a typical brand thing would be to kind of you know, sh shuffle, shuffle objectors off to private conversations or sort of mitigate, you know, any sort of, um, you know, strong reactions that you have. I don't think we do that. I, I think, you know, our, our mission ultimately is around behavioral change. It's around changing a well-entrenched food system. And so you're not going to change that without a little bit of friction. I think we just, you know, need to kind of acknowledge that. So I think we look at controversy not as something that we intend to do, but it, but certainly as something that we embrace and, and not avoid, you know, um, we look at opinions as sort of where conversations begin. And, and we have a strong belief that it's better to be debated than ignored. And so if you, if you kind of look at those types of beliefs and that type of approach, then you end up with, with a, a brand that, you know, seemingly has a stronger reaction than it should for making oat drink. And it's funny because, I mean, just this week, I, I don't know if it was new or if it had just was new to me, but I stumbled across the, you know, the fuckoatly.com website, which is where you'd basically summarized all of the boycotts and controversies over the years. And I thought, yeah, I mean, to exactly your point, I mean, it felt like such a, again, a self-aware and sort of humorous way of, I guess, having those discussions um be started I, what i found really funny about that was then someone had made a fuck fuckoatly.com response which i thought was quite quite amusing yeah yeah i think i think it goes uh four or five deep there's there there are people who you know would really appreciate fuckoatly.com 
then there are people who really, you know, like us a lot and they, they would, they would be uh, insulted by fuckoatly.com. So we made fuckfuckoatly.com. And then there are people who are like, oh, well, that's just stupid. Like, why would you ever do that? So we created fuckfuckfuckoatly.com and yeah, it kind of goes on from there. But uh, yeah, we're just, you know, we're just trying to anticipate reaction and, uh, and give content to the people. Yeah. How organic versus sort of manufactured is that in Oatly? Um, is something I'm curious about, I guess. I don't think that we try and manufacture controversy so much as really, you know, sort of amplify when it's happening. And by amplifying it, it's not to not to make noise for noise sakes. It, it's really to, to, you know, kind of explain our perspective. If you look at fuckoatly.com, you know, in that, that, that's explaining why we've done some of the things we've done. It's not apologizing. It's not making things worse. It's basically just going like we do have a, an, an opinion. We have a perspective. We are trying to create change. And so here's, you know, here's some of the decisions we've made. And we understand it, it's bummed some of you out, but at least understand the rationale. And, and you know, even if you don't walk away agreeing with us, we at least want you to know that if you are going to dislike us, we want you to at least understand, you know, our perspective. And if you still want to dislike us, so be it. Yeah, that that's really interesting. I would be very curious to hear how you sort of reason internally around being a defensive versus what I can at least perceive to be a quite not. Um, I was going to say offensive. That's the wrong word. But you're sort of proactive. <laughs> proactive is is more what I was getting at there. And because I guess you know, in a time of I don't know, you know, heightened political uh, polarization and you know this Bud Light thing that's been going on. One thing I notice about um, Oatly is, you know, for example, on LinkedIn, where I spend far too much time, you, you know, the, your social media team will respond to what seems like almost everything, which is just fascinating, both sort of criticism and praise. How do you think about, you know, you mentioned amplifying and it's better to be debated than ignored, but how do you think about sort of being defensive and protective of the brand versus, I guess, being more proactive and open to it evolving naturally and being part of the discussion how, how do those discussions go internally uh can you can you share what you mean from a from a defensive standpoint yeah well i mean i guess just you know um i don't know if you followed this bud light um sure you know sort of a controversy and and you know for you to sort of own the controversies so openly does strike me as somewhat rare i mean it feels like you know I remember, for example, when this, um, when some of the ownership of Oatly sort of was released, which you, again, you transparently share on that fuck Oatly site, you know, that was quite a big drama. And I think most brands would have backed away from that and tried to, you know, let it blow over. Hopefully everyone will forget it by next week. Um, but I remember at the time specifically that, you know, the Oatly social media team would go in and respond to, you know, fairly random, you know, Facebook posts. And I guess that's what I mean, sort of you're quite proactive rather than defensive and yeah yeah i you know again i think it probably just goes back to trying to 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 recognizing that you know people pissed at us is is can can be a great start of a conversation and and it again i think it's just sort of helping to explain our perspective and we have a lot of belief in our perspective and and a, a lot of faith in the decisions we make we do look at those decisions and go, okay, who might this bum out? You know, how strong of a reaction might that be? But overall, I think the the world right now and brands are a part of this. It's just one big hunk in conversation. And I think to not sort of anticipate that people will come off on both sides, on regardless of what you do, um, would be a little bit naive. So so do we weigh that stuff? Yeah. But ultimately, we we say, hey, here's our mission. Here's what we're trying to create. Will this help further that? And if it does, then, then we charge forth. 
Yeah. Uh, one quote I found from you online, which I, I guess is sort of related to that is you've said, you know, care more about your audience than you do about your brand. And, you know, maybe that's related to that. Uh, you know, I think brands are a little bit like people, you know, we love hearing the sound of our own voices. Um, but, but, I, but ultimately I, I also think, you know, when you think of that interaction online of, you know, whether it's our, our community management team or, or some others, like, you know, when someone cares about you, you know, when they're actually listening. I always look at a successful conversation as one where you ask more questions than you answer. And, you know, I think it's, you know, we try and take that sort of approach with, with brands as well, because I think there's a lot of structures, you know, there's a lot of, of structures that we, we have in marketing that just sort of naturally will guide our POV to be much more around our own interests, you know, our business, you know, look at like a, a, the format of a brief, you know, you've got business objectives and target markets and product specs and what, you know, people are there, but they, but it is very secondary. You know, I, I've, I've always kind of glitched on the term consumer, you know, just like that right there basically says, I, I'm not even going to value you as a person. You only exist to me if you're going to buy something. And I think that's a really, that's a dehumanizing approach. That's a very marketing-centric approach. And so I, I think anytime you can kind of recognize some of those structures and biases, it gives you a good opportunity to, to be a little bit more people-centric. And, and when you can, I think people will reward you with, uh, with their attention. And that's pretty awesome. Yeah, that's, um, that makes total sense. So Oatly is, of course, I guess most people know, but for those that don't know, it's a Swedish brand. Tell me, how do you feel... The Swedish culture, I guess, more broadly, has impacted the Oatly brand, if at all. You know, is it a fundamentally Swedish brand, and if so, sort of how? Yeah, it's a good question. So I, I'm I'm all of two and a half years deep in my Swedish experience, so I don't want to overgeneralize or or be be off. You know, I think when you look at sort of how we come to life, I don't know how much of that feels Swedish necessarily. There's a bit of a quirkiness and a bit of a hey, this is who we are. And I see that in, in some of the Swedish culture. I think I feel the Swedish presence much more as a company, you know, where, where we, we, there's, a, there's a level of, a little bit of a level of sanity, a little bit of, of a balanced approach, the lagom kind of a um, feel. It's sort of like that's what we work from as a base. Um, so, so I think in that sense, the Swedish culture, you know, pulls together people that are really good human beings, um, but, but I also think if you look at Malmo uh, specifically, you know, it tends to be the feistier, you know, part of part of Sweden. And I think we pick up some of that. It's a, a bit more diverse. We pick up we could pick up a lot of that. It's so so I think there's an energy of the city that, that you probably see in the character of us. But, yeah, I mean, those are, honestly, those are pretty subtle things. I'm not sure if people on the outside would pick up on that. But uh, I think that's that's sort of what I see from uh, from an internal perspective. Yeah. Um, I want to move to spam, which um, at least for me was sort of all over my LinkedIn over the last couple of weeks. You know, spam is a campaign I, you know, personally absolutely loved, if nothing else, for just how sort of weird <laughs> and wonderful it felt. Um, so please tell the audience about the campaign, um, you know, how it came about, uh, sort of the goals, I guess. And then, you know, it would be very interesting to hear how it's performed. But, you know, a little bit of a background on, on spam. Sure, sure. Obviously, it would, uh, it would, you know, we went through an exhaustive research process to, to discover it. I'm just kidding. So the spam campaign was, uh, was a multi-market campaign to advertise the fact that we now have a newsletter about oat drinks and people should, should sign up for that. 
but bef- you know, before the campaign, there there was uh, just a newsletter, and that's actually kind of where the story began. I think, you know, when you when you look at, at Oatly, one of the you know one of the sort of mantras around here is is you know act like a person, not a company. You know, act like a human human, not a logo type thing. And if you look at if you look at a lot of the early things that I think created a lot of affinity and a lot of fame for the brand, it was these small sort of personal acts. It was John you know, saying, hey, can someone, you know, make jewelry out of this package once you're done with it? It was Bjorn trying to get rid of his bike or Yenny trying to find a boyfriend and all that stuff, you know, worked its way into packaging or into some of our some of our uh, communications. And you just, you really got a sense of the humans behind the company. And so when we started looking at opportunities to, uh, it was specifically for the Netherlands, actually, um, when we started looking at how we could potentially articulate ourselves there, we really did feel like that was part of the brand, part of the DNA uh, and, our, and our persona that uh, we wanted to make sure we didn't lose as, you know, as, as companies get bigger and more scalable and all that good type stuff. So we looked at the newsletters as a way to kind of invigorate that that part of our, our persona. Um, and we created a newsletter, you know, comped up a newsletter and said, yeah, it would do, look something like this. And we just thought this, this is really, really stupid. It's a newsletter about an oat drink. So already it's start, starting stupid. But uh, but yeah, just we just had a lot of fun with it, um, gave people a peek into the goofiness of the company and, you know, created some of those sort of personal connections and just thought, well, this is too stupid for just the Netherlands. We should, we should, uh, you know, infect the whole world with it. And so, so the, the, uh, the idea was, was then to say, you know, we, sh- we should do, you know, a, a big sort of brand awareness campaign, but it shouldn't just be about Oatly. It should be hey, sign up for our newsletter. And so if you look, if you look at the, the campaign, which was a, a lot of outdoor, it was sampling, it was uh, social and what have you. If you look at the campaign, it was basically a, a, a brand awareness campaign for Oatly. It just happened to end with a bunch of newsletter subscribers. But but the the, the messaging itself, it had our what I think is a pretty good distinctive tonality. Um, it had our pack shots. You know, it end, it didn't end with a newsletter shot. It was like, no, it's it's a pack shot. We've got products that we're trying to sell. And and I think like a lot of the most famous Oatly work, it was completely void of any uh, useful information. So, so in that sense, uh, it was, it was basically, uh, you know, basically a brand awareness campaign. If we would have done just an, uh, you know, another Oatly brand awareness campaign, we still would have had a lot of fun. I don't know if you would have had quite the unexpectedness in that reaction. I don't know if your feed would have been filled quite as much if it weren't about the stupid little newsletter. So it feels like there's a takeaway for marketers in that, right? Which is like, again, I guess what felt so odd about the campaign is, of course, what made it memorable. For sure, yeah. I, I think there's, I think there's a real embrace of, you know, well, that would be a stupid thing to do. Yes, let's do that. <laughs> or, yeah, how can we make that even stupider? Yeah, great. Let's 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 go off and do that. And I think, I mean, I think another huge part of the Oatly persona is just the unexpectedness, the, the, the you know, the the joy and the surprise that I think. Uh, you know, we try and use to articulate the brand. You know, again, if you know, we're, we're talking about oat drink, so it, it inherently doesn't have joy, doesn't have surprise. Um, so I think we, you know, it's really important to kind of infuse our communication with that. And I think it's fascinating because you know, I can only assume. You know, I saw billboards in Times Square and in Auckland, and you know, so it, I mean, no small investment. Um, but to convince company leadership to put, you know. I guess millions of dollars into into a newsletter. I think is just sort of it says something about the boldness 
of the Oatly brand and company, which I think is extremely sort of admirable. Yeah, I, I think it helps when, you're, when your leaders are even weirder than you are. But again, I think there's, there's just sort of a, a cultural embrace of the unexpected and the, hey, you're not supposed to do that. And so when you do get to those types of conversations, they're not so much conversations as, the, as it is just enthusiasm and, hey, how can we do this? What makes the most sense? And what, you know, what, what could create the strongest impact? Yeah, something that sort of, there's a, there's a red thread just in my mind, which is, and I love what you just said there about, you know, doing what you're not supposed to do, you know, I guess breaking the rules or, or whatever. But, you know, there, there feels, again, there feels like, you know, that feels like a very clear takeaway for being memorable in a sort of ever increasingly noisy and busy world. Yeah. It, and, you know, you mentioned earlier just about how much marketing is kind of driven by by the analytics of it all. I mean, I don't know. Could you make an argument that the world isn't getting noisier and busier? It's actually just getting more predictable. And and so then the, the brands that are willing to kind of break out of that are actually, it's our jobs are almost easier now because there's such a like-mindedness of behaviors and of, of sort of approaches um, so that when you do step out, of, step out of those norms, you know, it just feels like there's a there's less people playing around and you know less people having fun. That was one of the my favorite reactions from the newsletter and the and the campaign was, you know, someone wrote and just said, "You guys just look like you're having fun." And and we number one we are, but number two, I think I think that's you know part of what we're trying to do is spread the joy a little bit. It's uh, you know again we 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 have a serious mission of of changing food systems and shifting people from dairy to to plant based. But, you know, there's no reason why that can't be a, a bit of a joyous experience as well. Yeah, I hate to be self-referential and mention other episodes of this podcast. But like I said, I was speaking to Orlando, who, again, wrote the book Lemon, all about uh, sort of the decline in advertising effectiveness over the last 10, 15 years. And, and one of the topics that we spoke about was exactly to your point, you know, just how few brands are leaning into fun, humor, nostalgia, and, you know, which, you know, like Orlando says, is just is crazy because, you know, so much of what we know about how to build strong sort of emotional resonance from a branding perspective is about tapping into all of those things. And, you know, to your point, you know, just being fun and, you know, going back to spam for a moment, I put something out on my LinkedIn as the whole spam thing was blowing up uh, and asked, you know, my network for, for their views. And one of my friends who works in the creative agency world said, you know, j just to make someone smile, it's sort of a radically underappreciated outcome and and i think clearly you know um spam made a lot of people smile if nothing else for the copywriting which is i guess something i'd like to pivot into the copywriting for me oatley's copywriting feels very very strong how have you created a culture and an environment in which great copy seems to just continuously come out how, how does one create a sort of an a excellent copy culture yeah yeah good question <laughs> And then, and, and the the reason I say that is, is I, it's it's funny. I, I we make things really difficult to be to be perfectly honest. We don't have a brand guide. Oh wow! Um, at all, there, there's there's nothing written down to say our voice sounds like this. These are our colors. This is our typeface. Like nothing. You know, we we kind of refuse to even pin specific adjectives on on that voice. We have a a creative director who goes way back with John. And, uh, you know, word is that it took him about two years before he really started feeling comfortable with the voice. And, and from, from my own journey, I kind of feel like when I walked in here, 
Uh, well, I'll, I'll give you give you a, a quick quick story. When I was still when I was first uh, starting to interview with the company, um, I didn't have a portfolio online, and uh, you know they said, "Well, we should we should probably see some work samples first, which seemed seemed like a reasonable ask. <laughs> and and so I I just put together a PDF and you know uh, or yeah and started with the the title page of you know five reasons why I might be might be right for you and. Uh, and, you know, because I wasn't sure, didn't know the company very well, didn't know uh, the people. And and so, you know, one was, you know, client and, and agency experience. One was international experience. One was working with passion brands. I forget what the fourth one was. But I got to the fifth and I couldn't, like, I, I kind of had covered everything pretty well with the fourth. And, you know, the, the, the sort of smart thing to do would be to go back to your title page and change the number. Yeah. <laughs> But in, instead, I sent them this this PDF, you know, promising five things. And when you got to the fifth thing, the copy just read, "Oh shit! Like I can't believe I promised you five things and I can only think of four. This is so embarrassing." And and you know they 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 talked about how like that was just such an Oatly-ish way to do things. And so I felt like I felt like when I arrived here, man, I I got the voice. Like it's you know it's just it's sort of you know pretty naturally the the way I think. And now, you know, two and a half years later, I uh, am am cri- crippled by insecurities. I, I I feel like the longer I'm here, the worse I do. So yeah, no, it's it's not an easy environment. But you know, one of the big mantras uh, here, I keep saying mantras, like we have a lot. I guess we have a lot. Um, is you know, we're consistently inconsistent. So I think you know, any consistency you do see in that in that tone of voice is is purely unintentional. Yeah, I think the hardest the hardest thing about you know coming on board here is, is kind of unlearning, you know, in, in kind of in whatever capacity, where you, wherever you join this company, you know, but, but for writers specifically, you know, unlearning, you know, selling things, you know, g- giving a nice clever close, like, you know, what um, being product centric, that's, we're not overly interested in that. We're not interested in proper punctuation. If you want to go off on a tangent, yeah, cool. That's a great idea. Cause that's just how people think. And, you know, and to do so, makes you and makes us even more sort of human. And so I think just, you know, kind of leaning into that and kind of, you know, you always have these thoughts in your head. Well, we just want you to write down those thoughts and we actually want you to just keep them, keep them right there. And I think that's, that's part of the humanity that, that, that comes through in the, in the voice. So it's, it's, it's hard to do things wrong, I think sometimes. And, uh, and that's essentially what we're trying to, trying to do. Yeah, speaking of that that idea of sort of just saying what you're thinking or whatever, one of my favorite pieces of copy from the spam campaign was, you know, there was a, a, a billboard in Times Square, I think, uh, and it said something like, you know, what would be dumber than buying a billboard to promote a newsletter? And then in the background, there's another building which says has another billboard and it says, you know, buying two. I mean, that for me, it's just so funny, silly, but really memorable. <laughs> Yeah, you know the the uh, we didn't get a photo of one of my favorites uh, in Berlin, which was which was another one where you had two like just gigantic billboards uh, next to each other, and one said, "Have you ever seen such a huge ad for you know an oak drink newsletter?" And then the next one said, "Besides the sign next to this, have you ever seen?" <laughs> just so <laughs> just amazingly stupid, but yeah, you know it, I was. I think when you look at it from an ROI standpoint, a space usage standpoint, quite often you look at a lot of the work that we do and you go, God, that, that half is wasted. And it's like, no, that's the half that made it memorable. And, and, you know, again, that's not how, 
I think a lot of a lot of folks would would look at two spaces. They'd go, "Wow, we have two opportunities to tell you probably the same thing," and instead we're we're going to go, "Hey, let's create a dialogue and make the first one even more memorable." Yeah, and again, I think you know, just, right, just sort of you know, optimizing for sort of you know, landing an emotional connection rather than a sort of a very rational you know, sales pitch or whatever. I'd be interested, Kevin, how would you respond to the criticism, which I have seen some people level at the copywriting, which is like, well, you know, this is advertising for advertising people. This is, you know, clever, clever stuff for creatives and copywriters, but you know, your average consumer or customer, you know, they don't care, you know, they just want to know, you know, what product they should buy or whatever. You know, how, how do you think about that sort of criticism? And, and you know, I assume you think that's totally wrong, and you know why? If so, yeah, for sure. Well, I, I think that if you look at uh, fans of our product, it goes far beyond the create the, cre- the creative audience. And and I, I think I think what has made Oatly's you know I, what has helped made Oatly so successful as a brand is really just connecting with people and and kind of what they're thinking, you know. And so I think I think quite often. You know, people aren't necessarily thinking about ads, but if they're starting to read a gigantic ad and, you know, just off of Times Square and it says, you know, this is a really stupid place for a newsletter. So, yeah, that, that, like that connects. You don't need to be in advertising to understand that stupidity. So, yeah, I don't think people are walking around thinking of ads, but I think if they're going to take a minute to start reading ours, that will be more often than not reflective of what they're actually thinking about the thing that they're reading. And so to me, that's that's the connection you make. So again, I, I, I totally understand we've got uh, some great support from the creative community and the marketing community and, and what have you, but ultimately the brand has gone far beyond those audiences. And, and I think that sort of real person acknowledgement and connection is a, is a big part of that. Yeah. And I mean, to your point, I mean, just look how big the brand is. It's, it's clearly sort of jumped that small, small crowd. Um, so on copywriting, I'm curious, so, you know, is, is it innate? Can it be learned? If so, how can one practice? I'm sort of curious to hear if you have any tips on how marketers can sort of get better at that style of, you know, I guess authentic is such a, yeah, such a cliche, but that's sort of like, say what you're thinking, copywriting. Personally, I, I think that, you know, you, you can always continue to, to, to learn. Like, I don't think there's necessarily a cap on that. Like I've been, I've been in marketing for a while and I think of back to my previous job before Oatly, I was uh, the director of marketing for Shanghai American School, Shanghai Megua Shuexia. And, and one of the things that we did was we have 162 different buses that are going around Shanghai uh, every morning, picking up kids and teachers and what have you, and we said, "Well, let's let's turn those buses into storytellers." And so we created 162 different stories, one for each of those buses, and you know, minimal QR code and all that good type stuff. And it was really interesting. It was about a you know five six month project, and it was really cool to see the storytelling and kind of how it evolved. You know, just in a four or five month period, you were doing so many of them. And it wasn't just me; it was you know that my my coworkers as well. It, it it was the best proof point of just sort of like how quickly you can learn if you if you're kind of intensely doing that. And so I, I think you know just purely from a you know a learning standpoint, I think that's that's super helpful. And just you know go you know continuing to do it. I think from an insight standpoint uh, and and that sort of voice standpoint, 
I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend everyone, you know, has that sort of awareness and connection like, like us. I think it's sort of what, you know, what's your brand's persona? How, how can that kind of come to life? And, and I think if, if you're in charge of a brand, the voice is, is certainly part of that, but it's sort of a, I, I do think it helps to go, how do you want someone to feel about your brand when they see your stuff? And then just being super pure to that. Sometimes if, if the, it's the reaction that's most important, the audience and their reaction is more important than you and what you have to say and what you have to sell. I think you're already going to end up in a good place. And that could be aspirational, humorous, serious, sad, whatever it might be. I do think that's probably a step that most marketers um, don't take. I think that does make total sense. And I mean, coming from more of the traditional sort of marketing rather than advertising side myself, I mean, yeah, you know, I can totally see how, you know, that sort of emotional, you know, how, what feeling should we leave the customer with is discussed far less often than, you know, what are we trying to sell and, you know, what's the call to action and, you know, funnels and. For sure. There's one other thing, just, just thinking about it from a, from a writing standpoint uh, that I found really kind of cool over the last few months, which is like finding a bar that you can't reach, you know, finding like, you know, a, like sort of a next level. So last summer, I just as a side project decided, you know what, I'm, I'm going to start to uh, submit to McSweeney's uh, online every, every month. And just, you know, just to try and get a, there's such wonderfully written article uh, articles and, and I'm just going to, yeah, I'm going to do this every month. The minute I thought of the idea, I'm like, yep, I'm going to write, write one every, every month. I did my first one. I sent it in. And like two days later, they're like, yep, we'll take it. And I'm like, oh, this is amazing. And then every month since they've like rejected everything that I've sent. And I think it's, I, to me, it's been really, really kind of helpful and instructive because it's not like Oatly is teaching me to be a, a better writer. On the contrary, I'm losing all my skills. But just having that bar that you're not going to be able to reach, and it, I think is is really just having that healthy dissatisfaction with whatever level you're at. And, and I, I would say that certainly as a person, but even potentially as a brand as well, like just being really, really critical of your stuff, killing off the, the weakest thing or, or highlighting the weakest thing and go, hey, we never want to sound like this again. I, I do think as much as, you know, there's a lot of, of nice, nice words said about a lot of the Oatly, Oatly work, we do a really nice job of continuing to just pick on stuff that, that could have been better um, and, uh, and what have you. Yeah, I think we live in a pretty fearless, you know, people will cover you if you make mistakes that, um, and that's a really nice supportive environment. But, uh, but yeah, I, I do think it's helpful to just remain, you know, sort of as self-critical as you can. Yeah. So I just want to touch a little bit on sort of, you know, you've been in advertising media for a while now, you know, what's the, what's most different about it, about the industry right now as compared to when you started sort of, you know, where, where are we and, and how has it changed um, over your time? Yeah. I, you know, I, I think that some of the first changes that come to mind are just sort of what form it takes. You know, when, when I, when I came into the business, you basically had outdoor radio, TV, or print. Like that was, those were kind of your, your things, maybe some direct mail or what have you. And that, that's kind of it. And I think looking at so many of the channels now, there's such a, a great opportunity for participation, for, for actual dialogue back and forth. That's super fun. I think the sort of constant evolution of, of the language, you know, I joke that, you know, Oatly is kind of ruining my English, but, but it like, I think the world's kind of ruining everyone's English. You know, we're all like, you know, 
creating these sort of forms of, of language and s- slang is becoming, you know, play, playing an even bigger part of, of life than it used to. And I, I think that that sort of constant evolution and that, that dialogue driven, those dialogue driven channels, I think that, that just makes for a, almost an entirely different business. I think that's, uh, I think that's super cool. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. And so, and so, you know, how do you think about, I guess, you know, the next five to 10 years, where do you think we're going? How do you think about AI? would be curious to hear what Oatly is sort of discussing without giving away trade secrets, obviously, but internally, how do you guys think about AI and generative AI and its place in creativity? And Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, uh, you know, when you look at sort of the, the next, you know, five to 10 years or what have you, I, I, I think, I do think that there's enough platforms that people can kind of pontificate on what, what should be, what, where's the industry going? And I think if you really look at, you know, people or organizations or brands that are changing things, they're, they're not doing what the industry is doing anyways. And so I think there's a whole lot of navel gazing. And I, I think there's too much in attention paid to where the industry is going. It doesn't really matter where it's going. You know, if I think agencies or collectives or whatever are really excelling at kind of doing, doing their own thing. And so, you know, sort of the more the more we're able to share and, and create visibility of our own work, I think again, that's it's that it's that nudge to to acting like everyone else. And I think the magic is still to to, to kind of go off and do your own thing. If you want to pay with pay attention to what where the industry is going, do so so that you know what to ignore. Sorry, I was just going to say sorry to interrupt. I heard someone, I uh, saw someone on LinkedIn say something quite witty and funny the other day. They said, you know, uh, Chat GPT is good because you know you can feed it a brief and then do the opposite. And that's probably the right path. I, you know, a little bit cynical, I guess, but you know, I probably directionally pretty spot on. Totally spot on. Yeah. And, and I think that's, uh, you know, when you, when you ask about AI specifically, I mean, I can't, can't necessarily uh, chat about what we're, what we're talking about internally, but there's definitely an observation that, that everyone is, you know, is running towards it, trying to figure it out, trying to play a role that maybe they don't need to do like, like the, the, the whole, you know, desire to be a prompt engineer, <laughs> Uh, you know, reminds me of like the early aughts where everyone's like programming. We all need to know Flash like now. And and frankly, if I knew Flash back then, I would have been able to bring other ideas to life. And, and that would have been cool. Just as now, if I had spent more time in, in, you know, being a prompt engineer or what have you. Yeah, you could definitely bring some some ideas to life or what have you. But and I, and I, I do think that there's a lot of work out there that's not going to be any worse with A.I., but I, I think in terms of like suggesting how the, the role that AI is going to play in, in, in marketing is, I feel like it's like asking a caveman, hey, how's this new wheel going to change things? Like it's a bunch of ways that have not been thought, you know, I don't think the caveman would have seen the lazy Susan, uh, you know, coming up. I think that's right. And I think it's worth remembering that, you know, the fundamentals of marketing never change. That's absolutely true of AI. It'll be useful in, you know, some ways, and I'm pretty sure it will impact society in some totally immense ways. But, you know, probably advertising for me, at least good advertising and good marketing, probably not. not. Not at the core level anyway of like telling stories, connecting with people, you know, driving emotional responses, et cetera. Yeah. Kevin, I want to move on to, I could literally talk to you all day, conscious of your time. I want to move on to the quick fire round. And, and the first question I want to ask is, what is your personal favorite marketing campaign of all time? 
I boy, I would I would go back to one that was running before I was born, which was the VW campaigns uh, in the '60s. I think if you looked at sort of how to think conceptually, you know, how to surprise, how to talk about product benefits in a in a relevant way, how to be human, man, that stuff really really holds up well. Uh, as as old as it is, I'm embarrassed to even say it. But if you are also rooting around. Uh, the, the old 60s communications, I would also look at the stuff that Howard Luck Gossage um, was doing. And, and you know, to me, like, it, it was so very ahead of their time. I, if you look at what he was doing in the 60s and you look at, like, what helped make Oatly famous, like, there's a, a remarkable sort of comparison. It, it, it is sort of connecting with people in really humorous ways. It's talking about things that are maybe on the outskirts of what you're supposed to talk about, so it's relevant, but but not, you know, not that sort of expected route. You know, it's the dialogue, the sort of back and forth. Um, you know, uh, you know, Howard Gossage used to used to say, uh, "Why would I write a campaign? I'll, I'll write an ad, and then we'll see how people respond, and then I'll, you know, respond back to them because it's it's a conversation." Again, that's something that that you know was about 50, 60 years ahead of ahead of its time. But but yeah, so to me, I, I, you know, I, I do think there's some just simplicity and some grounding from from uh, a couple of campaigns in the '60s or or practitioners in the '60s um, that I think would you know kind of remain really relevant and, and really instructive. Uh, what do you think is the most overrated trend in marketing right now? I think the obsession with awards is crazy. Um, just just the sort of desperation for third party validation. I think the amount of of Shows, categories, winners, shortlists. I, I mean, ultimately, I think there's more award-winning ads than there are good ads, and and that's that's a problem. It really, you know, I, I think if you, you know, anyone who thinks awards are a differentiator has never sat on the client side of an agency pitch. I mean, it's just everyone's won everything. Like it doesn't fucking matter to to me. That that feels like a, a super overrated trend. Um, if you just look at you know. LinkedIn feeds or you see what people are talking about that one probably comes to mind more than anything and 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 again that that sounds like that's not an actual in marketing but I think that affects the work that people do and how they you know how, how they how they do it you know like different accounts that they'll take on or, or what have you I think I don't I, I think it's a detriment to what we're actually should be should be doing can only agree with that I think you know I mean clearly sort of I guess awards are nice in theory, and I guess you know could could map to good you know business or brand outcomes. But yeah, um, I can also I think it's an interesting thought experiment to use another sort of corporate cliche. But it's an interesting idea to think about whether it leads to a specific type of advertising, which may be more or less effective. I think. What about underrated? What what's the most underrated tactic right now? You know, what aren't we doing or talking about that we should really be? The first thing that comes to mind, again, I'd go back to like a 60s thing, but I think like if you look at memorability devices like taglines and jingles, like I don't know why we left those. Like, you know, music is a really good way to, you know, entrench a message in someone's brain. Um, Taglines that don't quite make sense, but are memorable. That's that's a really great great device. And and again, if you look at it from a groupthink standpoint, you go, well, no one's doing that anymore. It's like great. We should all be doing that right now. Or actually, we shouldn't all be doing it. At least a couple of us should be doing it right now. And I think the first ones that do it and do it well, everyone will soon follow them, and then it'll get old. But really, it, it, like we've just 
we've we've left a couple of really good devices and and tools aside, and I'm not really sure why, other than maybe they seemed uncool. Yeah, well, again, going back to Orlando Wood and Lemon, I mean, one of the central ideas in his book is, you know, that those are all very right brain advertising ideas of, you know, right, um, uh, you know, fluency and yeah, everything from jingles to taglines to mascots. You know, mascots is feels like a very uh, uncool thing. And I think you're right. I think, you know, a part of it is just that it feels old and that's what we used to do. But, you know, if you look at, you know, should have gone to Specsavers, you're not you when you're hungry. I mean, of, of course, things like just do it, you know, and even just thinking back to your own childhood and, you know, the jingles from TV ads, you can still remember. I mean, I can still remember the phone numbers to like obscure retailers in, you know, Australia in the nineties. I mean, it's bizarre, but you know, they're sort of burned into my brain. And I think that says something about how powerful they are. Yeah. Who Kevin is the most interesting marketeer in the world right now? Yeah. The, the absolute first one that comes to mind is, is Ryan Reynolds. I've seen the backlash on him already start of like, Hey, that's a pretty similarity of his ad for Mint Mobile and his ad for, you know, aviation gen, like, yeah, I, I get it. It's Ryan Reynolds doing all these different things, but I think if you if you kind of break it down a bit a bit beyond that, you kind of go, you know, there's there's the fun aspect as as you know we talked about. You know, he's he's off having a blast. You know, he's doing a product a product shot of a drink being made, and the the ice doesn't land in the you know in the glass, or the the fizz goes over and it make, you know makes it like there's nothing wrong with that. It's it's you know again I think it's. It's human in the same way as Oli's voice, you know, makes that sort of human connection. That makes a connection. Sometimes you 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 do a gin and tonic, and the tonic fizzes over, and you swear, or you go, ah, you know, whatever. Like, and they leave that they leave those cuts in, you know. Yeah, I think I think the whole uh, uh, football club thing has has been absolutely fascinating. As a as an American, I'm fascinated with the idea of relegation, and I don't know why. I'd, Every major sport that we have isn't adapting that. Talk about like your great ongoing storylines every year. I think there's just a world of opportunity. And so the fact, you know, they, they had to jump to the UK. He and his partner had to jump to the UK to take advantage of that. But again, I, I, I don't think he's doing anything magical. I think he's doing stuff that's pretty obvious, but that for some reason seems to defy the ability of, of most brands these days. So he, he comes to mind. Taylor Swift comes to mind. Um, and just sort of, you know, every aspect, you know, from creating loyalty to, to shifting platforms to, you know, teasing and, you know, upcoming release. And like, again, the, the, there's such standard things, but, but um, I think they're doing, they're, they're taking our tools and they're just having more fun with them. That feels like a really nice uh, note to, um, to end on. Kevin, thanks so much for being on the show. No problem. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the On The Moment podcast. If you liked this episode, make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss upcoming episodes. And to suggest a guest or provide feedback, please visit our dedicated podcast hub at ownthemomentpod.com.